Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, I want to say good evening to everyone out there. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots Show, heard every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And on a delayed basis, on Saturdays and Wednesdays, it gets confusing, I know that, on KUHS Denver Radio and Television, thanks to Henry Archuleta, I'm on there uh, on a delayed basis, and I hope my friends out there in Denver and Colorado enjoy the show. And we're going to have a great show tonight, as we always do. And I guess I'm waiting for my guests here, so in the meantime, I'm going to play something that's appropriate to the theme tonight, because uh, we'll be talking about North Carolina, and I'm going to play the Carolina Chocolate Drops, Hit them Up style, because we'll be talking a little bit about North Carolina and basketball, so let's hear that song on the Root and Root Show. Time. 
in the forties between a African American college and a and Duke well actually it is Duke University but not really Duke University. Just tell about the genesis of that. Sure. Well so you know, so like you, Greg, this was um you know, this this book is about a story of a game that should not have happened. And that on in May or March nineteenth, nineteen forty four there was a secret integrated college basketball game, not in New York City, not in Boston, but in Durham, North Carolina. It was held in a in a locked gymnasium on a Sunday morning. There were to be no spectators, but they had a referee. And uh, this game was was just way out of time. It's way ahead of its time. Um, you know, 1944, this is, you know, this is 10 years before the Brown decision, 11 years before the Montgomery bus boycott, 20 years before uh, Selma. You know, in fact, it's three years before Jackie Robinson desegregates baseball, and that's up in Brooklyn, New York, that there was this desegregated, integrated college basketball game held in secret down in the Jim Crow South. So I, I discovered it, and, and like you, I was just flabbergasted. I, I, I was writing a different book on basketball, one that I soon abandoned, uh, you know, set in the 1950s, and I had met up at the Basketball Hall of Fame up in Springfield, Massachusetts, um, John McClendon. John McClendon, uh, uh, at that time, very elderly African-American basketball coach. I knew a little about him, but I didn't know very much. And uh, and I thought, well, he would be somebody good to, to do an interview with. There was a 50th anniversary of the CIAA basketball tournament coming up. So I called the sports editor of the New York Times. I said, hey, why don't I do a, a piece about that? He said, fine. I flew to Cleveland, uh, Ohio, where John McClendon was living. We did a great interview. And then near the end of the interview, he pulls out this sheet of paper that sort of has his racial firsts in basketball. McClendon had more than anyone else. I mean, in a way, he was sort of the first uh, black professional coach. He was the first African-American to be an assistant Olympic coach. He was the first black coach to win a, a desegregated and open national collegiate basketball tourney, the NAIA, back at Tennessee State in 1957. But at the top of this list, Greg, and your listeners as well, it said 1944, first integrated college basketball game in the South, you know, North Carolina College for Negroes, which is now, of course, North Carolina Central University, versus a military team from the Duke Medical School. And I kept looking at that and looking at it and looking at it. I finally said, hey, Coach, you know, you know, don't you mean 1954 or 1964 or something? And uh, he said no, and uh, we started to talk, and, and that's, when, uh, that's when my life changed at that point. And, uh, you, know, you, you know, know, I realized that there was a big story here. It, it certainly is. It was a big, big story. And listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Scott Ellsworth, the author of the new book, The Secret Game, A Wartime Story of Courage, Change, and Basketball's Lost Triumph. And I'm glad that you put the quote from John Thompson near the end of the book because a lot of people don't know Coach McClendon. They really don't know him. And just say something about that quote. We'll get back to the, well, the story itself. Well, 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 I will. When uh, when when Georgetown won their their first NCAA championship, a uh, a white reporter came up to John McClendon and said, "Well, well," uh, or to, to John Thompson, essentially, the, the Georgetown coach, and says, "Well, Coach Thompson, 
how does it feel to be the first black coach to win a national basketball championship? And Thompson took a beat and said, I wouldn't know. You'll have to ask John McClendon. And, and Thompson was referring to McClendon's championship back in 1957 at Tennessee State. But McClendon is one of the giants of basketball, absolute giant of basketball. He was the last student of James Naismith who invented basketball. McClendon was his last student at the University of Kansas in the 1930s. And it's, uh, McClendon took some of the ideas that Naismith had, the ideas that people weren't paying any attention to, added a whole lot of his own ideas and sort of working, you know, in a way on his own alone in, in North Carolina in the 1930s, 1940s, he creates a new kind of, of modern basketball. It's a, it's a fast break basketball. It's a full court pressure offense basketball. And it's a basketball that's also on the basis of incredible conditioning that he had his players do. So in a way, if, 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 uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, James Naismith is the father of basketball. In a way, John McClendon is really the father of the modern game, and it's the modern game that we play today. And, and it's so amazing just to, you know, just to know about him, to reread, you know, just read again about what John McClendon meant to not only the sport of basketball, but just life in general, and just talk a little about what he was doing, even, you know, because you met him, you know, he was an older man, but even at that time, he was still working with young folks. And talk a little bit about that. Well, he was he was an incredible man. I mean, everybody that um, – and, and I got to know him in the, his last, I think, four years of life and spent a lot of time with him and a lot of time on the phone as well. We traveled together and, and did stuff. But he – I think people who met him, uh, you know, would regularly say he that was the greatest person they'd ever met in their life. Um, he wasn't very big. Um, you know, he uh, and and he wasn't a, a basket much of a basketball player himself. He uh, he he really learned about the game when he's about 11 years old in Kansas City, where he largely grows up. And uh, but he wasn't good enough to make it onto his junior high team or his high school team either. And then when he attends the University of Kansas, um, Fog Allen, the coach there, as the other coaches in, in you know that part of the country in those days weren't going to allow any black players on the teams. But McLennan was just passionate about the game and threw his life into it. The other thing about McLennan, there's a couple other things about him as well, too. First is is during, and, and many African Americans did this in the South. This is sort of forgotten, but a lot of people would not self-segregate themselves. You would have to deal with segregation. You would have to, if a police officer or if a law says you have to do this or that, but there, there would be times when you had a choice and McClendon, with one exception, would never self-segregate himself. If, if there was a movie or something, black folks had to sit in the top, up in the balcony, whites on the, on the first floor. He just wouldn't go, and uh, he wouldn't do that. He also was very um, very firm about his beliefs. He, he believed that um, you could never lose your dignity in front of your players. He was in very dangerous situations sometimes. He had to diffuse things with angry whites or white police officers. But he told me you always had to be prepared to give up your life, you know, as well. And then the third thing about McClendon uh, is that he was a very religious and spiritual man. He, uh, You know, there would never be a meal that would pass when you would not say grace, even if you're sitting at a Wendy's at a rest stop on an interstate. He was somebody who was also, you know, he never met a stranger, 
children adored him. Other people loved him. And he was just, just he's a real giant of American sports. And, and I, I think he's just a giant in general. I, I agree. And you bring it out in the book. It's just great that, you know, and I hope that listeners and other folks, you know, will read the book. But let's talk a little bit about some of the other folks that are in here because it's a fascinating group on both sides of the on both teams who uh, make up the secret game and I don't want to give away I'm trying to avoid trying to give away parts of the book that makes someone say well I don't have to read it now I know everything but well I, I, I won't about, you won't Greg <laughs> all right well you know I, I won't I won't do anything like that but we'll just talk about why this game came about first of all what you know, you're talking about the segregated Jim Crow, North Carolina, the South. Right. What what happened to make this game come about? And talk about some of the players also on the team, in particular, uh, Audrey and the guy who was, uh, what's his name, um, Slim, the one that was 6'11". Well, Big Dog. Yeah. You mean Big Dog? Right. Right. Well, I, I I think that um, you know the game. It, the other thing, as as I as I did the research for this book, I kept I kept seeing these other stories that that I didn't think were very well known in the country. Yeah, the first was you know McClendon's just pivotal role in helping to to really bring basketball into the modern age. I mean, he is so so very important. But the other thing I also started to see was you know we we tend to think oh you know you know the civil rights movement begins in, in, with the Montgomery bus boycott and then, you know, goes on to the sit-ins and, you know, the freedom rides and, you know, all and all that. But what, what I realized and what I came to learn is that there were plenty of African-Americans in the South and some whites as well who, particularly during World War II, are pushing back against segregation as much as they can, uh, sometimes in, in very dangerous ways. But you have you have a lot of GIs who are in Durham because they're getting trained at an army base nearby, uh, many of whom are northerners, black and white, who aren't used to seeing Jim Crow signs. So you have people sort of disobeying those signs as well, too. There were teenagers in, in North Carolina. There was a young 16-year-old girl by the name of Doris Lyons in Durham, African-American, who refused to go move to the back of the bus. You know, she ended up getting pulled off by a white plainclothes detective who threw her on the ground, beat her, and then arrested her. But there are people who are crossing the color line, and they're pushing back against it. The other thing, which is kind of a part of this mix, there's a couple other things. One is that you had young people, and particularly young people with the YMCA and the YWCA. You know, we when I was a kid growing up, the YMCA or YWCA was a building downtown where you went, you know, swam or, you know, worked out and stuff. But in those days, they had chapters on college campuses, like campus organizations. And what happened is a lot of these young people were in this terrible war, were trying to create a new world after it, who decided that in the new world they didn't want segregation. So there were young people from the all-white YMCA chapter at Duke who were in contact with the all-African-American YMCA chapter at North Carolina College for Negroes, and they ended up having secret uh, uh, clandestine prayer meetings together. Uh, very dangerous what they did. It sounds crazy, but it was dangerous at the time. And it, and so there are people who are reaching across the line. And then the third part of this, and uh, I'm not going to give the whole story, this will sound crazy today, 
But prior to, you know, in the 1930s, 1940s, and up until, you know, the early 1950s, the great African-American players and the great, particularly the great African-American coaches were almost all at HBCUs and mainly in the South. They never really knew how they stacked up against white teams, okay? They didn't know, could they, could they, were they good enough? Could they compete with those guys? All of that. You know, McClendon had been an undergraduate at Kansas. He knew how the Kansas players under Fog Allen played. He had also gotten a graduate degree at the University of Iowa. He had seen Big Ten basketball. And he had this new, this new team, this incredible new team, but he didn't really know how they, well they would compete. And so in the back of his mind, as in the back of the minds of other black coaches were, boy, I'd love to see how our team would play against a white team. And that, that's really something. And, that, you know, it sounds weird, but the fact is that's the way it was. Well, that's the that's way it was. The way. It's, you know, it's a different mindset, you know, back then than it is today as well. And, 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 you know, and, um, yeah, let's get to Well, I want to um, – I'm skipping around in the book. I'm trying to avoid actually yeah, sure. giving away anything. But, you know, you're talking about the change of students. There's a scene near the end of the book where I think the former governor – comes to speak at North Carolina College. Yes. Yeah, his name, was, his name was Clyde, Clyde Hoey. So, so part, and I'll set up that story by, you know, I'll talk, talk about a couple things. First of all, you know, North Carolina College in Durham, the African-American community in Durham, particularly the business district, which is known as Haiti, named after Haiti, um, you know, this is, this, is, this is arguably in the 1930s, 1940s, this is the most successful Black business district in America. It's it's home to the uh, to the largest African American owned business, which was North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company. There were you know you know black hotels, black hospital, black banks, black insurance companies, the uh, restaurants, you know florists, you know you name it. Uh, there were African American electricians in Durham who never once did any work for a white home. So there was a lot of money, relatively speaking, in Black Durham. And in fact, the Negro Business League in Durham had 500 members in it. So you had this very successful, you know, group of of, of upper class and upper middle class African American businessmen there. But they're also, you know, to go along and to 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 make their money, they've got to get along with, with Jim Crow as well too. They've got to get along with the whites who are who are running the show largely. And so there was something of a mindset that says, well, let's just not make any waves. So, you know, in the middle of that, of course, you've got James Shepard, who is this wonderfully talented uh, president. He's the founder of North Carolina College, uh, and, and he's a great fundraiser. And one way he gets to be a good fundraiser is getting along with all these white segregationist politicians. But near the end of the book, uh, one of these gentlemen, it was Governor uh, Clyde Hoey, uh, comes to speak, and uh, a controversy, and all the students had to attend these things. Uh, a controversy has to do with, with how he pronounced the word Negro, which he pronounced Nigra. And uh, whenever he starts to do that, the students start to scrape their feet along the uh, bare floor of the auditorium, eventually drowning them out. So, and, and that's in there because you've got this generation – Greg, of young African Americans in the South who are ready to, you know, ready to do something, ready to launch a movement. They're just waiting until they know how to do it. 
And that, you know, to some folks out there, that may seem like a, not even a real protest, but you got to consider the time. That is a major thing to do that. Well, it is. And, you know, here's here's another. So the same the same year, and this will show you how high the stakes are, the same year, in 1944, an African-American GI by the name of uh, Booker T. Spicely, private first class Booker T. Spicely, in uniform, boards a city bus in Durham, North Carolina. He does not move all the way to the back of the bus. He gets an art into an argument with the white bus driver, and white bus drivers in Durham were armed at the time. Um, you know, words fly back and forth here and there. I thought I was fighting a war for democracy. I guess I'm not. Bus driver threatened him. He's going back. They get to the end of the line. Uh, Private Spicely walks off the bus. The bus driver follows him off the bus. Then he unholsters his, his forty five and he murders Private Spicely right there on the ground. Private Spicely lays bleeding to death on the ground, even though there's a hospital across the street, but it's an all-white hospital, and black patients are not allowed to go to it. So everyone sees what's happened. Um, you know, there was no threatening move by Private Spicely. All the black witnesses, all the white witnesses agree as to what happened. In North Carolina, as throughout the South in those days, only whites are allowed to sit on juries. And if it's a if it's a capital trial, uh, only white men are. So they have this big trial. The you know the white uh, the white judge talks to the jury and says, look, you know the, you know the rule of law is supposed to apply fairly to everyone. You know he the driver was not allowed to take the life of the soldier. If, uh, you know, uh, for no reason and all that. So the all-white jury deliberates for 20 minutes and then comes back with a not guilty verdict. The truth of the matter is, is that in North Carolina, as throughout the South in the 1940s, if you cross the color line, even if you just cross the color line, don't move all the way to the back of the bus, you can take your life in your own hands. You know, and there's some echoes, you know, in the book, as I was reading the book and, and listening to you now also, and listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to Scott Ellsworth, the author of The Secret Game, A Wartime Story of Courage, Change, and Basketball's Lost Triumph. Um, I can hear echoes of what's going on right now in communities okay. like Ferguson, Missouri. And and I want to ask you, it's kind of getting away from the book, but not really. What do you see? You know, and what would you say to someone, you know, to get them to read, someone younger, someone in their 20s to read the book, and what do you see as the parallels of what's going on right now? Well, I mean, you know, it's, I mean, there, there are, I mean, it's complicated, as you know. I mean, times have changed right. and times have not changed both. So, um, you know, I, I think it's important to, uh, I think we all need to recognize the predecessors, recognize the ancestors. The Civil Rights Movement did not come out of nowhere. It also was built on the foundation of these people in earlier generations, in earlier decades, who are doing what they can and, um, you know, and are fighting back, you know, are changing their consciousness, all that. So I think it's very, very important for us to go back and, and, and to read about how people have pushed against uh, injustice in the past. Um, you know, the other part of the story, too, and I, I think this is a little bit lost, is, you know, this is this is also, this you know, the secret game, this isn't just black people who are doing it. These are whites as well, too. So what is it that's, about Yeah, and I wanted you to bring that up because that's, that's, that's very important. 
that little aspect there. Absolutely. So, you know, if you look at, in my reading of American history, if you look at American history in the long term, so there, there have been two occasions when we have made any serious progress in terms of race relations, okay? And I'm talking about hundreds of years. You know, certainly the Civil War era is going to be one with the death of slavery and the Civil Rights era as well with the death of legalized Jim Crow. Obviously, we need to have something else today that's going to move us even further forward. But if you look at the Civil War era and if you look at the Civil Rights era, the way things work in the United States is you have to, in the end, you have to have a multiracial movement, okay? So one part of the book that I think is important is, you know, why is it that these whites also took a chance? Why did they decide to do this? What's motivating them and how to figure that out? And I think that's an important story as we move ahead because we are, you know, we are, uh, uh, we are more diverse society you know, in 2015 than we were in, you know, than we were in 1965, you know, or, or 1944. Right. So we need to figure out ways to get people from different backgrounds, different religions, different races, different ethnicities, different politics, whatever it is, together and to work together to change things that we need to change. And this, I think we have a caller on. If you can hold on for just one minute, Scott, I'm going to see sure. if there's a caller on here. Are you on the line, caller? Nope, I don't. I think they have gone. I heard them breathing, but there's nobody on there. So. Oh, okay. But anyway, you know, I just want to, you know, I just really want to again commend you for this book, and I wanted to try to avoid not giving away anything in the book because it's a, it's a basic story. But you know, you have outlined the hidden meaning of everything in the book, and it's just a great well, book about. I appreciate that, Greg. Because it's not, you know, it's about civil rights, but more so it's just about human nature, the right to, you know, change in a society due to the war. You have a picture I've never seen. There are a number of pictures in here I've never seen, but one in particular of Gerald Ford, the president, on a ship playing basketball. Like, oh, my, you know, it's like I was surprised. I looked at it and said, oh, my goodness, he's in there. But it's a great, you know, it's just a great book, and I just really thank you for doing this. And, again, I want to ask you, um, what else would you say to get someone who's out there who's like, well, I don't want to read about anything in the 40s. This is 2015. I don't want to do that. What would you say to a person like that? Well, kind of I, I would before. say to you, you, certainly if you're, I, well, you know, I, you know, we, uh, um, you know, this is you know, it's also a book about people. It begins with a with a right. young man uh who who grows up in a in a single parent household, poor as can be, on the coast of Beaufort, North Carolina, where, you know, the best that he can ever envision is that he's gonna work on one of these fishing boats and that there's not gonna be any any real life for him. You know, uh, he goes to a very small school, the idea that college is never gonna happen and, and, and all that. Well, that young man ended up, because of the war in part, uh, got to go to college. But by the end of his college career, he also left because by that point, the secret game and other things had changed his mind so much that he could just no longer stand to live in the segregated South. He goes up to New York City. Uh, he becomes a New Yorker. He has a, a long and successful career. Uh, he ended up wanting to return to the South because he felt that it had changed. 
But, you know, these are human stories about people trying to right. trying to cope with very difficult issues. And I think there's, you know, if, if you love basketball and if you're interested in, in where it comes from and how it happens, uh, there are some, you know, I was just blown away by all the wonderful stories and characters about the development of basketball, you know, that are in there anywhere from a, a, a crazy high school coach in New Jersey who used to bring his pet black bear to the games who would sit on the bench and then shoot free throws at halftime. So there's, you know, the old basketball, you know, we, we just think, it, you know, it, it's not just a bunch of um, guys with little tiny shorts who are bouncing very slowly right. and passing the ball. There's a lot of characters in it, and there's a lot of America in it as well, too. And we could go for another half hour talking about those characters, but I want the listeners out there to get the book, to find out about the characters well, thank in you, there. Greg. I really appreciate it. You know, so, again, the book is The Secret Game, and I've been talking to Scott Ellsworth. And I want to thank you, Scott, for coming on today. Hope to meet you at some point because this is it's a it's a superb book. Thank you for doing well, it. Thank I, you. I, really I can see this, it, because, Greg. I can. I don't know if it's happened yet, but for some reason, I can see a contract, movie contract, coming out of this. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. We'll we'll knock on wood with all that. But I, you know, I, I'm. It's just great to be able to be on your show and and to. Uh, you know, to talk a bit about the book. I really appreciate it and, you know, help spread the word. I will definitely do that. Thank you so much, Scott. You take care. Thanks. Uh-huh. You bet. Bye-bye. And, again, that was Scott Ellsworth, the author of the book, The Secret Game, a wartime story of courage, change, and basketball's lost, lost triumph. And that's easy for me to say. And that it is on Little Brown and Company Press. And I would recommend it. just came out, and I would recommend it highly. And it's um, and it's even got a as far as a you know as far as a a promotion on it you know I have a number of folks who are praising the book and uh, Coach uh, Mike Krzyzewski of the um, head coach of the Duke uh, men's basketball team he has you know he has some comments on there so it's a great book and I know a lot of folks because I didn't know this story and all, and and uh, there's a whole thing about the history of North Carolina at that time and how it was there was a thriving community there as far as well-off upper-middle-class African-American folks at that time, and it's, you know, one of the leading business communities in the country, not just as far as African-American community, but community, period. So, yeah, check the book out again, The Secret Game, because you never, you know, miracles do happen, you know, and it was a miracle to get that game together, and I'm going to play right now. The Jackson Sisters, not the Jackson Five, and they're not the sisters of the Jackson Five. This is the Jackson Sisters, and the song is I Believe in Miracles. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
slaps my flapjacks, cleans off the table, feeds the horses in my stable. My man, such a handy man, he's God's gift. Sometimes he's up long before dawn, busy trimming the rough edges off my lawn. Oh, you can't get away from it. He's such a handy man. Never has a single thing to say while he's working hard. I wish that you could see the way he handles my front yard. My ice. Don't get a chance to melt away. He sees that I get that old fresh piece every day. Oh, that man show is such a handy man. Red and 
gravy all the time. And that was a great Ethel Waters. And that was bread and gravy. Before that, we did Ethel Waters. And my handyman, I could do a whole show on her, which I may do at some point in the future. But right now, we're going to get to, I think I do a couple of slow jams right now. Because I haven't done those. I didn't do any. Unless I did some the other day. Why don't we do this one, uh, The Moments. We're going back to 1969 and not on the outside. So let's hear that on the Root and Root show.
All right, that was a that wasn't a slow jam, but it was a nice mellow song as far as Lisa Lisa and Cold Jam. I wonder if you take me home. And then we did uh, Immature featuring Keith Sweat and Extra Extra, and we started to set off with uh, the moments not on the outside but inside. Strong on the Root and Root show, and that's the second time in a row, second day in a row I've played something with Keith Sweat in it. I may have to do a whole show. Well, I know all the ladies are like that if I did a whole Keith Sweat show, but that's another, that's another story here. But anyway, hope you're enjoying the music. Hope you enjoyed the interview with uh, Scott Ellsworth earlier about his book, The Secret Game. But now, you know, I'm going to do for the next probably half hour, <clears throat> excuse me, because he's doing a tour, and I wanted to do this a couple of weeks ago, actually more than almost a month ago when he had a, a special, but I didn't get around doing this with Stevie Wonder is during a tour and he had this special on where he played a lot of you know, he played his own songs and all that. And I'm gonna do a tribute here to Stevie Wonder and play some of his music. Some of the stuff is some stuff that you might not know. I'm not gonna get into superstition and uptight and all that, but some of the rarer songs, some of the ones you may not know. And some of them you will know, like Living for the City and things like that. But I'm gonna start off with one that um is it's a rare, rare one. It's called it's Stevie Wonder Love a Go Go. But he said, actually, this shows you that even Motown will sample his own self because the melody is dancing in the street. So, but I'll let you judge it. So let's hear, start the Stevie Wonder um, half hour or so with uh, Love a Go Go on the Root and Root show. Let's not wonder why 
You call my name, ooh, so sweet To make your kiss incomplete When your mood is clear You quickly change your ways Then you say I'm untrue What am I supposed to do? Be a fool who sits alone waiting for you
I got so much into Stevie Wonder. I was, I was like, I forgot I was supposed to be on the air. But anyway, that was a little Stevie Wonder medley. I hope you enjoyed that. It's, uh, we played All Day Sucker. And then before that, Living for the City, Ordinary Pain, It Ain't No Use, Black Man, My Sherry Amore, If You Really Love Me, and Love a Go-Go. And those are some that you've heard, some you haven't heard, haven't heard in ages, and I, I just wanted to do that. Hope you enjoyed that little medley right there, and I'm going to, um, I think I'll play some more. i got, I got enough time. I'll play a little more. Let's hear Stevie Wonder singing Creeping on the Root and Root Show.
Hey, hey, hey. 
Stevie Wonder was too high to my friends out there in Colorado. And then uh, the other song was um, Creeping. And we did songs previous to that. If you just didn't hear it before, it was all day, uh, all day Sucker, Living for the City, Ordinary Pain, It Ain't No Use, Black Man, by Sherry Moore, and If You Really Love Me, and Love a Go-Go. And I hope you enjoyed that. That tribute to Stevie Wonder, I could do, and I got so much here, I could do more. I could do another, like, week of just Stevie Wonder songs, but I'll probably do some more again, obviously, on the show in the future. But I just want to, again, thank my guest who was on earlier, Scott Ellsworth, who wrote the book, The Secret Game, A Wartime Story of Courage, Change, and Basketball's Lost Triumph. It was about a secret game between... uh, Duke University students, medical students in a in the black college, uh, North Carolina Central was like back then North Carolina College for Negroes, and it happened in Durham, 1943-44. So check the book out. It's on Little Brown Press. Actually, I'm sorry, it's on Little Brown and Company Press. So check that out. It's a great book, and it's relevant to today. It's really relevant. Some of the things, stories in there, and unfortunately, we still have issues of not Jim Crow, but something. Some people are trying to get back to that, so we have to prevent that. But this again is Greg Rashid with the Root and Root Show. And if you want to um, make any suggestions, have uh, topics for future shows, got any comments, you can. Go on my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can go to Twitter, hashtag U-N-I, F as in Frank, I-C, S as in Sam. That's hashtag Unifix, and you can tweet me there. Also, you can go to the blogtalkradio.com website, look for the Root and Root Show, as you have done tonight. And find out information about how you can, you know, become an advertiser. If you've got comments, uh, questions, concerns, anything like that, feel free to just get on social media and talk to me. But I really appreciate those of you who are joining this this network, that are joining the show and all in. And I want to say again hi to my friends out there in Colorado listening to me on KUHS radio and television in Denver, Colorado, thanks to Henry Archuleta. So I want to say go in love and go in peace. We'll see you. And next week we're going to do, next Friday we're going to do a special show because we have the author of a book about Miles Davis's monumental two-album collection of Bitches Brew back from 1967. And we're going to talk about that. And also uh, next week we're going to talk about the Hall of Fame, um, well, he's not a Hall of Famer, but he should be in the Hall of Fame, Gil Hodges, baseball player Gil Hodges. And we'll have some other stuff on the show, but going love and going peace. This is Greg Rasheed with the Root and Root Show. I'm going to leave you with, uh, I think we'll do some Courtney Pine. I haven't done Courtney Pine in a while. Let's do Incense songs. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Going love and going peace.